one simple thing to do when it comes to coming up with ideas for email is to separate the writing from the ideation, as you've just called it. So if you go to your computer thinking, I've got to write an email, you're putting too much pressure on yourself to come up with an idea. And usually what you do is either you come up with nothing or you just come up with some something, the same old things again and again, because you're under time pressure, I've got to do it. You do the first thing that comes to your head. It's better to take time out in advance and do your brainstorming of all your ideas. And then when it comes to write one, you've got 10, 15 ideas. You just pick the first one or pick one off the list and then write about that. So that, that's the first thing is take time out to do it. This week on Inboxing, Ian Brody, best-selling author, consultant, trainer, and all-around nice guy. And we're live. Welcome back to another episode of Inboxing. Inboxing is now in its third season. And today we have a special guest. I honestly don't really know him very well, and we're actually meeting for the first time in a minute. But I found him because of his book that he wrote a bunch of years ago, uh, Email Persuasion, or Persuasion of Email. I can't remember the name of it, honestly. But um, we're going to talk about it, and he really knows his stuff. He's a great marketer, and uh, I'm excited to talk to him and find out about his story and how he got into email and just deliver great content for the folks listening. So without further ado, please welcome Ian Brody. Hey there, nice to see you all. Oh, well, I can't see you really, can I? Nice to be seen by you all. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Um, yeah, it's great uh, It's great to have you on the program. Yeah, like I mentioned, you know, I didn't really, we, we, you know, we don't have any personal connection really other than I found you, you know, looking at who wrote good books about email and you're one of those people. So tell us, like, how did that, how did that even happen? You know, like, I mean, I would start off like, you're obviously a Brody, but tell us, like, where did you, you started off? You started telling me a minute ago that you're from near Newcastle somewhere. So let's start there. Yeah, well, see, I, I live near Manchester, and um, being a Newcastle supporter, living near Manchester for about about a hundred years has been a bad thing. But this year, we actually stand a chance of uh, of maybe you know maybe doing something. Anyway, so background is I um, I have a technical background. I did a, like a mathematics degree and all that kind of stuff. I worked in R and D for a few years in a proper job. But then I ended up becoming a consultant. Uh, I wanted to change a career, became a consultant, um, did an MBA to get there, and spent about a dozen years doing strategy and marketing and sales consulting, hopping around the world working for big companies until about 2007. And by then, I was so worn out with all the travel. I think I'd worked in 17 countries in 12 years, which sounds really glamorous, but it's really, really tiring being on planes all the time. And I thought, I'm just, I had enough. I want to work closer to home. Um, I knew by then a lot about marketing and sales stuff. I realized I also had learned how to sell and market consulting, professional services, that kind of stuff. Um, I was quite good at it. Even though I'm not a natural salesperson at all, I'd been forced to learn how to do it in order to survive. Um, so I'm quite a good teacher because I'm, I'm not good at it naturally. So I kind of, you know, it's forced learning as opposed to someone it comes naturally to, um, which is difficult to learn from. Um, so I set up a business locally to teach that to professional service firms. That went okay, but it really took off when I started blogging in 2007. And all of a sudden, the internet opened the world up for me because it meant, of course, I could stay at home and yet still have a pretty big audience and a specialist audience. Um, and from blogging, I moved into email marketing. It went really well. Um, all my sales started coming in through email marketing. Um 
And I got more and more people saying, Ian, we really love the way you write emails. They feel nice to us. It feels great to receive them. They feel really helpful, feel like we know you. It doesn't feel like you're selling to us and, and yet we buy from you. Can you teach us that? So I did a course on email marketing and then that turned into a book that I wrote back in 2013. Um, and I think since it's difficult to tell the overall sales figures, but it was like the number one um, selling book on email marketing year after year after year on, on Amazon. So I think it's probably been w- at least one of the best selling books of all time on email marketing. Certainly got the number, the most five star reviews on Amazon. It's got like 200 odd or something. Um, so, uh, and I drifted away from email for a bit. I got a bit uppity and thought, yeah, I have so much more to offer other than email. Mm-hmm. I have all my other skills and knowledge. But more recently, just talking to other people who are developing online courses like me and stuff, every single one of them is like, I need to know more about email marketing. So I've kind of gone back to my roots a little bit, and I'm coming back to teaching people how to write useful, valuable, entertaining, interesting emails that actually persuade people to buy. That's awesome, man. It's interesting. Like, I feel like I feel like most marketers didn't study marketing. You know, they just end up in their something that was like, a you know, sort of an interest, and, you know, and you get good at it, and then yeah, you can move on from there. So good for you, man. That's awesome. So tell us, what do you find upsetting in your inbox? What 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 are the emails that really make you go, oh God? <laughs> that is the first time I've been asked that question, but I generally don't get upset by much. I'm very laid back. It's not kind of but the, the ones I find the most annoying, particularly of the email marketing type, emails that I think kind of like punching down. And what I mean by that is it is very common in the email copywriting world for people to ridicule and complain about people who unsubscribe, people who complain to them. So you'll see an email copywriter, you're on their email list, and all of a sudden you get an email from, I got someone complained yesterday, what an idiot, here's what they said. And they'll they'll kind of beat up on this person who complained. And initially I was kind of thinking, yeah, I understand, I understand. We all get, cro- you know, we all get angry when people unsubscribe and we get defensive and stuff like that. But it turns out, and I found out relatively recently, this is not just an accidental thing. This is a strategy they are following that they're teaching to others as well to beat up on people you don't like who are like people who unsubscribe and who complain um, because, it, it, in their view, it elevates you. It makes you seem superior. It builds a little tribe who support you against the ones who don't. And I really don't like that for two reasons. I mean, one is... For me, it doesn't elevate you. It makes you seem weak. It makes you seem like you are very defensive, as if you can't take criticism. But the main thing is, I think it's bullying, because the person you are, you know, dismissing and seeing as an idiot or whatever, they don't have any way to respond. You've got an email list of five thousand people, fifty thousand people, five hundred people. Doesn't matter. You can reach people. They can't. And for you to punch down at them. And complain about them with, and they have no ability to. I just think it's bullying, and it's you know, it's bad form. I think we're better than that. We are better than that. So because there's lots of there's lots of things you would complain about, but in the email marketing world, that kind of punching down to, on easy targets, I, it makes my skin creep a little bit. I think if you're going to punch, if you're going to, you know, have a go at something, have a go at bad practices in your industry by people who are bigger and more successful than you. Because that's a big target who can fight back. It's a, it's a, you know, it's mm-hmm. legitimate. And it's not, it's not an easy target who can't say anything back. That's that's just not on. Right. I guess it's like general, like in you know, in social media where people are bullying people and you know, going out of their way. You know, it's an email. You're doing that. It's just yeah, stay away from that, man. Don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> no, not good. 
All right. Um, all right. Well, you, you mentioned that, like, yeah, well, I, I, I'm asking this question is, what was your background in email before you went on to write the book? You know, it, it's interesting. I, yeah, I said I started my business in 2007. So I started off blogging. Um, and I did that for about, and because, mainly because I just had stuff I wanted to say. It wasn't for any like strategic reason, but I found it was beginning to build a lot of traffic to my website. Um, and then a friend of mine, uh, about 2009, so about a year and a half later, said, "Hey, you know, you're not, you don't seem to have any, you know, be building an email list. You don't have an opt-in form. Have you not thought of email marketing?" And I kind of said, well, "It's this 2009. Email marketing is dead." Everyone's into blogging's the big thing. Nobody does email marketing anymore. And my friend Lee said, Ian, you're an idiot. So I, <laughs> over time, I reflected on his words and I realized that, in fact, he was right and I was an idiot and that email marketing wasn't dead. And in fact, it wasn't a competition between blogging and email marketing. The two work really well together. And when I started doing email marketing, of course, I was able to build a deeper relationship with people because it was in their inbox. It was more personal than in public on the blog. And of course, my sales started increasing as a result. And it, and it's, you've seen that obviously time and time again since 2009. Every time a new big social media comes along, email marketing's dead. This is the new big thing. And the reality is email marketing isn't dead. And of course, they work well together. I I used to speak quite a lot on on uh, at social media conferences. I was like the email outlier while everyone else was talking about the sexy stuff. And for fun, I always used to go up and look up the websites of the other speakers, like you know the speaker on Facebook and one on Pinterest and whatever. And it was always amusing to me that the speaker on Facebook, for example, if you went to their website, above the fold, the big thing they had was an email sign-up form. It wasn't just connect with me on Facebook. It was an email sign-up form, same with Pinterest, same with LinkedIn, whatever. <laughs> Because they recognized that getting someone's email and getting them to sign up and then communicating with them regularly in a more predictable manner, in a deeper manner, was where the money was. That's not that their social media was wrong. It's just that, again, the two worked hand in hand together. It's not a competition. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, it's definitely email, you know, it's part of an ecosystem. You know, like I'm saying, whether it's, you know, with social media or with blogging, it's, it's part of that. And, and working together, it could be a beautiful symphony. I love them. And, and they do different things. They do different things, don't they? Because, you know, email is not an acquisition channel. You know, people don't discover your, you, you via your emails because they only, unless you're kind of, unless you do it really well and you get a kind of viral effect with people sharing them. But by and large, people will discover you through other channels. But email is brilliant for follow up. And we, of course, know any, if people are buying anything big, it takes multiple contact points. You have to build a stronger relationship with them. You have to be there top of mind when they're ready to buy. And email's great for that. All right, so how should companies come up with great ideas? You know, a word I actually just recently discovered is ideation. Like, like that's a thing. Like, coming up with ideas, it could be very hard. You know, depending on your industry, you think you're very limited. But, like, how do you, how do you grow that? It is. I mean, this is one of the things I hear... The, the kind of the most from people with the okay I've got a I'm beginning to build an email list I've got a you know a few hundred subscribers maybe even a few thousand but I'm I'm just not consistent with emailing because I'll I'll log in I'll think I'll write an email and there's a blank screen and I go blank uh, or I'll write a few paragraphs and then oh that's rubbish and start again and an hour later I've got nowhere so it is it is a challenge for a lot of people and I think one thing to do is one simple thing to do when it comes to coming up with ideas for email is to separate the writing from the ideation, as you've just called it. So if you go to your computer thinking I've got to write an email, you're putting too much pressure on yourself to come up with an idea. 
And usually what you do is either you come up with nothing or you just come up with some something, the same old things again and again because you're under time pressure. I've got to do it. You do the first thing that comes to your head. It's better to take time out in advance and do your brainstorming of all your ideas. And then when it comes to write one, you've got 10, 15 ideas. You just pick the first one or pick one off the list and then write about that. So that, that's the first thing is take time out to do it. In terms of coming up with the ideas, there are really two sides to any email. There's the topic you're writing about, and there's the way you write about it. And both of those you need ideas about. So, so as an example of that, let's say you were a LinkedIn trainer and you wanted to write an email about improving your LinkedIn profile. Now, you could just write an email with some tips about, you know, um, do A, do B, do C, do D, and your email profile will improve. Good. That's one way of writing an email. On the other hand, you could tell a story about how your your email your LinkedIn profile was awful and nobody ever looked at it, and then you changed it by doing A, B, C, D, and E, and all of a sudden you started getting people visiting and it was all great. Or you could write about a client of yours who used your techniques, and again, you give the same tips, A, B, C, and D, and they did this, and then they got great results. Or you could draw an analogy between a LinkedIn profile and a dating profile. And what we can learn from successful dating profiles is A, B, C, D, we should apply them to our LinkedIn. So for any given topic, you can illustrate it or explain it or write about it in a lot of different ways. So that, you know, there's a multiplication sign in there in between those two things. So first of all, that gives you lots, for any topic, you can write about it in lots of different ways. So the thing to do is to first of all, think of potential topics. And the easiest source of that is to just think through, for my ideal clients, what are their main problems and challenges and goals and aspirations? Because as long as you're writing about something that's a problem for your clients or something they want to achieve, you're on safe ground. They're always going to be kind of interested in those things. And so just think about your ideal clients or ask them what their main challenges and problems are. Make a big list of it. From that starting point, you can usually go deeper or broader. So if your starting point was, well, they need to get more, you know, in my case, they need to get more clients, very high level topic. Okay, let's go deeper. What does that mean? What are they, what's stopping them getting more clients? Well, they, they don't have enough initial contacts and they're not very good at converting them. Okay, let's go deeper in conversion. Okay, they, they're not very good at building relationships or they're not very good at asking for the sale. Let's go deeper in those. So for any big topic, think of all those big topics and then break them down smaller and smaller. If you start off small, they're not very good at asking for the sale, build up bigger. Well, what does that impact? Well, it means they're not good at converting. Okay, well, that's another one. Well, if they're not good at converting, what happens there? Oh, well, it means they don't get enough sales. Okay, well, let, so you can go, you can take any topic drill deep or go up to it. So what you should be able to do, if you just think about your ideal clients, put them in, put yourself in their shoes, is come up with maybe a dozen initial topics. And then by going up or down, you should be able to at least double that in terms of the number of topics. And then you can group them together in similar topics. So you can do a series on one, one big topic where you're covering you know, a big topic and all the little subtopics. Um, and that gives you a lot. And then you go separately and you brainstorm, well, how can I illustrate those topics? And the thing to do with that, and this is where the fun comes in, I think, is you take a topic like, let's say it's the LinkedIn profile again. You decided that a big problem for your clients as a LinkedIn trainer is their profiles are awful and nobody pays any attention to them. Okay, so uh, the first thing to think about is yourself. Have I got any interesting stories to tell about LinkedIn profiles? So that could be when I first created my LinkedIn profile. It could be later on when I'd improved it and some super, you know, higher up level tips. Did I make a big mistake with my LinkedIn profile? When I was a child, 
when I was a child, was there anything about the way I presented myself? Because a profile is just a way of showing yourself to the world. So think back in history. Was there anything, an experience from my childhood that relates to LinkedIn profiles? Maybe, maybe not. Was there anything when I was a teenager? Was there anything when I got my very first job? Well, probably my CV, you know, that, that applies. Was there anything when I, you know, got stepped up and became successful in my job? And you've got all your own experience to layer into that. Then think of your clients and do the same. So when I first started working with some of my clients, did they have some big problems? When they got really successful with some, some other stuff there, what are the main questions they asked me? Have I got any stories there? Then think about um, third-party kind of research. Could I do an analysis of LinkedIn profiles? Could I go onto LinkedIn and look at some of the top people in my niche or, or my client's niche um, and look at what makes a successful profile and do my own kind of analysis and report back on that analysis? Or someone else done some analysis I can build on and comment on. And then you've got the more funny ones. What analogies can I draw? And I love popular culture, stuff like that, because people just find it interesting. So you could look back in history. What can I learn from great American presidents about profiles? I don't know, but I'm sure if you thought about it, you could. What can I learn from current film stars and pop stars about profile? Well, of course, pop stars and, and people in the media always present themselves in a certain way. So I'm sure we could learn about their profiles and how they look. Um, what could I learn about someone who's the opposite, someone who's really bad at presenting themselves in the public eye that we could learn? So you just play around with it in those four different areas. Area one is your own history and your own background. Um, area two is your clients. Area three is research, you know, looking across things. And area four is just fun stuff to do with um, popular culture and drawing analogies with things. Um, and for any given topic, look in those four areas and you will always get two or three different ideas for a way you could tell a story or just make that topic interesting. Got, add those two together and what you've got is initially 12, maybe you double it to 24. And then for each one, you've got two or three. That makes, you know, 60, 80, 100 topics you've got just from an hour's brainstorming or maybe a little bit longer by the time you write it out. And it's loads of fun. And honestly, I do workshops with people with this. And just to do the workshop without making them think deeply, I'll just say, just imagine you're a small business owner, uh, sorry, a consultant who teaches small business owners how to be more productive. Um, tell me a story about your childhood, about what you can learn about productivity. And people will type in the chat, oh my God, when I was a kid, I was always late handing my homework in. I always had to do, oh, I was late for that. Oh, what I always used to do was this. And, and you'll get tons and tons of stuff. And people will have a fantastic time and have a laugh at their history just coming up with ideas. And you can do exactly the same for reels when you are writing about your own topics. All right, that, that was awesome. <laughs> Thank you for that. So how can companies make their emails more entertaining? You know, to keep them, you know, to keep it ball rolling, you know what I mean? Like, oh, you, you hit a home run on that email, but what about the next email, the next email, the next email? Yeah, you know what? That is, a, it's another good question. Um, I think it's much underrated. I think a lot of businesses, the more businessy you get, the more you feel you have to come across as professional. And so the first thing to do is to relax a bit and to recognize that the people receiving your emails, even in business to business, they are people. And people are interested. If you think about work um, and the, the, you know, and you think, well, work, oh, you know, we've got to be serious. We've got to talk. We've got to give them value. We've got to be really serious. We can't talk about what was on TV last night. Think about when you, the last experience you had it when you were in a, a normal corporate job and you went to get a coffee. What did you talk about? When you're getting a coffee with a, with a colleague, did you talk about you know work related stuff 
Or did you talk about sport, what you did last night, what Janice is in accounting is doing with Erica in, you know, whatever. <laughs> you talked about more trivial stuff. So lighten up a bit. It's okay. You still have to give value in your emails. Otherwise, eventually people will, will, you won't have the time for them. But you can illustrate that value in interesting ways. So just go back to the, the way of coming up with topics and, and ideas that we, we thought about. Can I tell a story to introduce the email that's about me and something weird that happened to me? That's about my clients and something interesting happened to them. Is it an analogy with um, something fun in the news? I always like to do, or a good one to do, is lessons, is lessons learned from a famous person. That's always a fun one, but don't be cliched. So if you're right, if you write about leadership, you give tips on leadership, don't use Winston Churchill because everybody's done Winston Churchill. Use George Clooney or, you know, someone people wouldn't expect. And you can have fun with that. But again, I spoke to a leadership coach and just saying, do something unusual. I mean, I'm sure you wouldn't you'd never be able to learn anything from George Clooney, but and she immediately went, Oh, hang on. Hang on. I could there are some things about George Clooney we could learn about leadership. If you know your topic. You can always draw that analogy. So, you know, don't do the Olympics when the Olympics are on. Don't do whatever the big sporting event is. Don't do famous people who are famous for leadership right now. Look back in history to, you know, don't do Abraham Lincoln or George Washington. Do Grover Cleveland or what, some, someone unusual that means it's new information for people and it's a bit quirky and you'll get something interesting and entertaining out of that. Eventually, over time, you'll also learn through practice to write in an interesting way. But that it's really practice that, you know, read fiction, read um, kind of comedy, and you'll just get little turns of phrase, things like the rule of three and subverting the rule of three, where you list three things, people are expecting the third one to be similar, and you make it different. You learn those little rules, but the first thing is start off with something that's inherently interesting and entertaining, and then anyone can write about it and the other stuff you pick up as you go along. Attention, e-commerce store owners. Are you tired of losing sales due to an ineffective abandoned cart email strategy? The abandoned cart expert can help. Our proven optimization strategies are guaranteed to help you recover more lost sales and boost your bottom line. Plus, with our no-pay guarantee, there's no risk. Don't let your lousy abandoned cart emails cost you more sales. Head to abandonedcartexpert.com now to learn more and start turning more abandoned carts into purchases. Yeah, so till now we've really been talking about like email campaigns, like one-offs, but a lot of emails is automated and, and series. So, you know, what email series do you think is the most impactful and why? I'm probably in agreement with most people. Yeah, I think it's your welcome email series uh, for two reasons. I mean, one is the first series of emails people get when they subscribe, obviously more people are going to read that than, than anything else, so it's going to have the most impact. But the second thing, I think it also sets a precedent. If you knock it out of the park with your first few emails, people are more likely to read your following emails. Um, so it increases the open rate. You know, if, if you, your very best ever series is six months down the line, you know, you've already lost a lot, you know, people by then because of, you know, you always, you know, you never get more. It'd be nice, but you never get more people opening every time. You're always going to lose some people. You can't get, you know, it's very rare to get more people opening over time. So 
do your best work early on in your welcome sequence. Okay. What should you put in your welcome sequence? You know, how do you make a great welcome story? You anticipated my answer there, <laughs> didn't you? <laughs> uh, I, th- I, think it's, I think there's a couple of things. I think your first email is very important. We'll come on to that in a second. The thing I would think is just go back to first principles and think about what am I trying to achieve with my welcome sequence? And this will really depend on your business. So, for example, if you sell an online course that costs $200, I think it's perfectly feasible to try and get people to buy that online course um, within the first five or six emails. Of course, only a small percentage will, but it's it's enough to kind of pay for any marketing you have to do to get people onto the list in the first place. So it's worthwhile focusing on that, but doing it in a way, recognizing that maybe 95% of people won't, so the email sequence has to add value while selling and be fun while selling so that you don't lose the people who aren't ready to buy. But bearing that in mind, you think, well, my goal is to get them to buy product X. What do they need to know and feel after five or six emails to be ready to buy product X? And, and when you think that through, you probably think, well, they probably need to know that they you know, they have a problem in that area, that it's worth solving, that it's worth you know big money for them, or a, it's a psychological release. They probably need to know that my product works. They probably need to know that it's different to some of the methods they've tried before to solve this problem, et cetera, et cetera. And then think, well, how can I sequence doing those things in the emails? And this is where the topic and the way you illustrate it come through. In that the topic, I would always go with something that's valuable and interest valuable related to a problem they might have in that area. So whatever product you're trying to sell, Let's say you were selling them a boost your LinkedIn profile because we're using that as an example. So you'd send them five emails with five tips on boosting their LinkedIn profile and you'd think through what are the five biggest problems they have with their LinkedIn profile. But then you'd think, okay, well, what do we need to prove to them for them to be ready to buy? Well, we need to prove to them that you know my methods work. So what I should do is in at least one of those emails, I should illustrate it with a case study of one of my clients who's been through my course and got great results from it. I don't want to just say, hey, my course is great. I get great results because nobody believes you when you show off yourself. But if you happen to mention, you know, here are three ways of improving your profile that Fred used who just bought my course. He immediately implemented them and got blah, 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 blah results. People go, oh, so someone used Didion's course, got immediate results from it. Maybe I can get immediate results. They're kind of discovering for themselves. So kind of tick off those factors as you go through. So that's if you can sell something immediately. If you if what you sell is, you know, $20,000 minimum of consulting, they they're not going to buy that after five emails from you. So just think what do I realistically want to achieve by the end of that welcome sequence? I you know, I want them to to maybe think I really know my topic. I'm a nice guy. I send interesting stuff that I want to listen to and just deliver that in the email. Maybe what you can get them onto is a discovery call after five or six emails instead and you 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 build up to that. So it's really dependent on your objectives. Just break it down and think, what do I want to achieve in this welcome sequence? And often what you're combining is, what does the client want, which is answers to their problems? That's the topic. What do I want? I want them to think I'm smart. I want them to know my things work. That's often the way you illustrate it. That's often the stories you tell that subtly get across certain points. So that's, so that, that's the kind of the, the big strategy the initial welcome email, I think, is super important. And what I would just recommend there is over-delivering. So if someone someone has signed up for, let's say, a lead magnet, and they've signed up to your, to your email list, first email, make sure you deliver the lead magnet, obviously. Make sure you thank them 
and remind them of why they signed it up to get over that, you know, buyer's remorse after they signed up. And they may only check your email a couple of days later. So what's this, you know, remind them why they signed up and what they're going to get. Give them some expectations for how often you're going to email and what about so they're not surprised when, you know, if you're going to email every couple of days and they thought you were going to email every month, you, you don't want that. So tell them you're going to email every couple of days. But then the most important thing, give them more than they were expecting. Give them an extra brilliant tip a free video in addition to the lead magnet that explains one key point. Because if you over-deliver like that, that means they're going, oh, that was brilliant. Wasn't expecting that. I'd better open the next email to see what's in that. And that, you know, if you ramp up so that they're thinking, I, and they're anticipating the next email, that has a ripple effect on, on everything you then do. That's awesome. All right, let's go to mistakes. So what are the big mistakes everyone's making? You know, like uh, obviously there are mistakes happening left and right, but you're talking like companies and like stuff you're seeing. So what do you think are the big mistakes everyone's, you know, a lot of companies are making? Obviously, this is always biased by your own personal perspective. But I think first thing is um, most companies don't email enough because email is hard, because thinking of ideas is hard. It's easier if you do what I just said, but because it's hard to come up with ideas and it's hard to write emails, we tell ourselves that people don't want to hear from us, that people are overloaded. And of course, if you think about it, the amount of times people want to hear from you is going to be on a normal distribution, isn't it? That's maybe the, the, the ideal frequency. But whatever frequency you go at, it'll be too much for some people and not enough for others. You know, you could feasibly email more to others and you get better results. The only people you're going to hear from are the people it's too much for. Um, nobody's going to write to you and say, hey, you know, Ian, you're not emailing me enough. Nobody, nobody does that. But if you f- if it feels like you're emailing too much, people will email. So if no one is emailing you, given that it's a normal di- distribution, if no one is saying you're emailing too much, you're not emailing enough. Because there's got to be some people on the edge of that normal curve that it's too much for. You know, th- that's a, a bit of a fun explanation. The re- reality is if you look at any of the data, and this is the important bit, if you look at any of the data on email frequency, you always, almost always, like 90% of the time, get better results by emailing more frequently. So the thing to do, and often I get, I get people talking, say, oh, Ian, I'm really worried about overloading my customers. I don't want to overload them with emails. And I say, well, how often are you emailing currently? Uh, once a month. It's like, I think you could probably <laughs> afford to email a little bit more frequently without overloading them. So just, you know, if you're emailing once a month, try once a week. If you're emailing once a week, try twice a week. You know, once you get begin to get down to once a day, my experience is once a week is a good frequency for B2B where the people receiving them are overloaded anyway with their bosses and their colleagues emailing them. If you're going to an individual or a small business owner who signed up for tips on finance and stuff like that, you can get away once a day, is undoubtedly. And that, that very often happens. But try and find the best frequency for you. And by starting where you are and going a bit more frequency, if it works, a bit more frequency, if it works, if your open rates start dropping significantly and too many people unsubscribe, there'll always be some of too many if you get a flood of them, then just reel it back a little bit. It's usually nothing to worry. It's usually more than you're capable of creating. Is what I find. So that's usually the first problem, not emailing enough. Second problem I see with a lot of companies, we've talked about it, is just being too damn boring in your emails. There's just this felt need to be professional. Um, and so it's either just a factual email. There's just no personality in it. And even if you're a company and there are multiple people, get one person to take the lead and to write from them so they build a relationship with that one person or alternate it between different people, but use their name and 
get your customers or, or your potential customers feeling like they're building a relationship with a person in your business. Because people don't build relationships with companies, they build relationships with people who represent that company. Um, and they, they infer the qualities of the company from that person. But it's very difficult to build a relationship with an individual company. Even something like Apple, we all love Apple, but really probably it's Steve Jobs and Tim Cook who we think we have the relationship with, even though we don't. So have a bit more personality in your emails. Other big mistakes, I see people being too salesy in their emails, which we, we might touch on, and also not salesy enough. It tends to be black and white. You'll get some people who will just, you sign up and it's nothing but sales pitches. And of course, that that's okay if everybody is ready to buy when they sign up. But of course, the vast majority of cases, they're not. You get other people who are so scared of making a sales pitch <laughs> that they never do it. And then, you know, what was the point of getting people to sign up for your email list if you never offer them anything? So you, there has got to be a happy medium somewhere in between those two, which I think we're going to talk about later. So either too salesy or not salesy enough. And the last one, Often missing a call to action. I, I said this recently. We, we, my wife was discussing it with me because uh, she was thinking that she kind of dropped in this kind of desire to give value. She dropped a call to action at the at the end of her her emails. And you know, the the phrase I remembered from when I first started up my own business and and getting a, a talk from it from a sales expert was if you give lots of value and you ha you have the sales meeting, but you never ask for the sale then all you're doing is you're warming up the customer ready for the next salesperson. And it's the same with your emails. If you, and it doesn't have to be a sale thing, if you do give lots of value, if you entertain them in the email, but you never ask them to do something, you know, all you're doing is warming them up so they're ready to do something for the next person's email they receive. So always have a call to action, even if it's just to, you know, to go and read an article, to share it with someone else. Get people used to taking action when they receive your emails rather than getting used to just reading it and moving on. So those, those would be my five, I think. I think it's five there. I think you might have hit five. <laughs> You're definitely close. All right. So, yeah, you know, we talked about being persuasive. And that's actually the name of your book, right? It's Email mm. Persuasion? or It is indeed, yeah. All right. So, yeah, so how do you, how do you be persuasive without coming off as pushy or sleazy? I mean, I think a lot of people think about, you know, sales is like a sleazy business. Uh, so... How do we unsleazify it? Well, I think, you know, the reality is many of us have this perception, the reality, and it's because of media. We watch Glengarry Glen Ross. In the UK, people tend to look down on sales. All the salespeople in the media are, are well, we have, you know, Del Boy Trotter. Unless you watch UK media, you won't know the references, but the, but we laugh <laughs> at them. They're not, they're not you know, they're, they're kind of foolish and, and make mistakes. We love them, but we laugh at them. So there's not a very high perception of a lot of salespeople, but great salespeople are not pushy or sleazy at all the bad salespeople who are, and those are the ones we remember, of course, unfortunately. In your emails, um, there are two sides to it, I think. One side is the email it's the email where you're going to ask for the sale itself, but the other side is how you warm people up, ready for it. Um, people buy when they're ready to buy. Now, you can nudge them along the way and get them readier to buy, but you can't force them to, you know, to be ready to buy when they're not. Um, so, the key thing is when when you send an email that's more of a sales email, you can't, you know, no matter what you say in it, you can't persuade someone to buy in that one email who isn't close to being ready already. So your earlier emails have to kind of get them closer to being ready. So the thing to think about is, um, as we just said earlier with a welcome sequence, what would someone need to know and feel to be ready to buy from me? 
And it is these things like, well, they, know he, they need to feel they've got a big problem. They need to feel they want to ser- solve it and it's urgent to solve it. They need to feel comfortable that I'm trustworthy and a nice person. They need to know that I have a unique solution that they've not tried and failed with before. There's all these things, and some of them might be unique to you and your products and services. Some of them are more general, like I've just said. Think through, think them through and write them down, and then just think, okay, in my series of emails or over time as I email people, whenever I'm doing an email, think, how can I cover one of those little topics to start build, building and changing people's mindset so that by the time I've got something, I'm, I'm trying to sell them something, they're close to being ready. So I don't have to do a massive amount of persuasion in that one email to get them to buy. They're kind of ready because of all the warming up I've been gently doing with them on the way. So that's the first thing is warm them up beforehand. And that's, you know, if you think about high level sales in the real world, that's about building a relationship um, with someone first rather than asking for the sale the very first time you meet them. The next thing is in the email itself, I think the secret is really to make your sales call to action, a logical flow, a logical next step from what you've been talking about in the email. And if you do that, you can sell in almost every email. There was a famous thing, I think, about, you know, left hook, left hook, right hook, jab or something, basically saying, um, do value, value, value sales pitch. And I just think that's wrong because even if you if you send someone an email with value in, they'll go, oh, great, thanks. And another email with value in, great, thanks. Another email with value in, great, thanks. Then you do an outright sales pitch. People will go, oh, well, I don't, it doesn't matter how much value you send in the previous emails, three days later, a, a pure sales email is going to put people off. What you should do instead is sell and add value in the same email. Um, it's a bit like if you think about, about adverts on the TV, you don't get a series of different adverts on the TV where the advert doesn't sell, doesn't sell, doesn't sell, and then there's a massive sales pitch a week later. Adverts don't work like that. Adverts entertain and sell in the same advert. And you kind of need to do add value and sell in the same email. So if we look at our, our LinkedIn tips guy, um, let's say he sends he sends a, an email that says, here are, you know, here are five great email tips wrapped up in a story about themselves or a client. Tip one, tip two, tip three, tip four, tip five. And then just a natural conclusion. If you've just given someone five great tips on their LinkedIn profile, a natural thing would be, look, if you want to get more of these tips that'll help you accelerate your progress on LinkedIn, or you know, we'll, we'll do something else LinkedIn related, um, you might want to check out my new LinkedIn course, which covers A, B, and C. So it's a natural next, natural follow-on from what you've already done in the email. And there's two things going on there. One is no one is going to read that. Oh, he's given a great tip. He's got an email course that goes further. No one sensible is reading that and going, how dare he offer me something You know, that, that's very sensible afterwards. But also the reality is if people aren't interested in, in LinkedIn, they're not going to make it to the end of the email anyway. You know, here are some LinkedIn tips. Oh, I'm not interested in LinkedIn. They're off somewhere else. So if you're offering them a course on LinkedIn, they're not even going to get the sales pitch because they're not going to make it to the bottom of the email. So by structuring like that, giving value in the area of something you want to sell works great. Now, obviously, here's a tip on LinkedIn. Here's a tip on LinkedIn. Here's a tip on LinkedIn. Buy my course on cryptocurrency. That's probably not going to work because it's different. It's jarring. It's like, where did that come from? But if it's a logical next step, and it's also an achievable next step, you're not saying, press this button now and give me $10,000. You're saying, 
go and go and find out more about my course. Maybe on the, the where they click on more, it'll be a sales page with more details. It might be a video with you doing some more. It might be an invite to a webinar where you give more tips and then make the offer for the course, depending on the price. You're taking them step by step. So think about what a realistic step is, given where they are in your relationship, and do it in a way that the people who aren't ready aren't going to get offended by it. But the people who are, are ready um, will go, oh, yeah, that looks good. And then that way you keep both sides happy and you kind of live to fight another day so that two weeks later, three weeks later, those people who weren't ready then might be ready now. And again, they'll see another call to action at the end of the next email. And maybe that's the right time for them. Yeah, that, you know, I feel like this whole episode, I'm going to want to listen to it myself again and again, because there's so much, there's so much good stuff. There's here a lot around. of subtlety in it. I think we, we, um, in marketing, we've got a bit obsessed in recent years with kind of little psychological stuff with, with Cialdini and Aureli and all that kind of psychological nudges. And, you know, if we put scarcity in and deadlines and use a seven instead of, and these are the little tricks that do work and can increase your sales. But if you go back to the Greeks, back to Socrates and Plato um, and Aristotle, they knew how to persuade and they used ethos, logos and pathos. And if you go back to the core principles of you know, showing that, that you're someone they can trust. There's a logical reason for buying this. And this is really going to solve a problem that's troubling you and is personal to you. Then that's that's the big thing. The little tricks get you an increment, but, you know, work on on the big elements of persuasion first. That's awesome. All right. Now we've, we've sort of reached the end and I always open it up. The last question is always like, do you have any final thoughts you'd love to share? I guess it depends on who is listening. But the kind of final thing I always say to most people is most people just are not are not doing email enough. That, that's the reality is, you know, if you're emailing once a month or even once a week and it's kind of a chore, you know, just look look at the data. Where, where most people's online sales come from is email. Email is in people's personal inbox. It's a, they hear your voice speaking to them. It's not like on social media where they they realize other people are looking at it. It's a personal connection you're able to build with people in their inbox. It works really well with other types of media, but please don't overlook it. And you know, just some something simple like follow some of the tips to come up with more ideas and make it easy, and then just. Try and do it a little bit more and you will get better results. All right. Well, thank you so, so much. It's been really, really awesome. Stick around for a minute. I'm going to kick you out and uh, we'll talk after. All right. That's our show for today. Yeah. Thank you, Ian Brody, for a great show. I learned a lot and I'm sure anyone who does listen to this will as well. And uh, there still are inboxing uh, opportunities to sponsor inboxing. So if you're interested, go to hilloberg.com slash sponsor. That's our show for today. Have a good one. That's all for today's episode of Inboxing. Uh, big thank you to our guest. And if you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Any feedback or suggestions, please just reach out to me at hello at hellobird.com. Um, before we go, I want to remind you there's still sponsorship opportunities available for Inboxing. Uh, so if you're interested, you can just reach out to me again. And thank you to our current sponsor, which is Bentley Card Expert. Uh, without their support, this wouldn't be happening. So if you're an e-commerce brand looking forward to recover more lost sales, uh, be sure to check them out at bandicardexpert.com. Thank you for listening and tune in next week, every Monday, for the next episode of Inboxing. <laughs>